The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. The scripture reading this morning is Genesis chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, your spies. By this Shall, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And so they did. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, 
and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go away. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, church. If you're newer here, my name is Bob, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors uh, here. And every week when I get up here uh, to communicate God's word, it's both a joy for me and it's also a challenge. Uh, what makes it a joy is uh, that I love you guys. Uh, I love being a part of this church. Um, I just like preaching to people that I know or that I know I don't know all of you. If I haven't met, you should uh, come introduce yourself. But um, it's a joy just preaching and communicating to folks that I know. Um, I don't like preaching in other churches that much. I get invited to do it some. But what I don't like about it is I just don't know the people. And so the joy for me in preaching is just getting to see the Word of God connect to lives and stories and human beings that I actually know. Uh, and I love that about being here. It's also a challenge uh, to be up here. And the reason is if you think of, if you just put yourself in my shoes, I'm looking out at hundreds of people. You're looking at one person, but I'm looking at hundreds of you. And that's always challenging. Here's why. Because there's, in this sea of faces, there's always at least a couple of you that look really confused. <laughs> it might be because you are confused. That's possible. I've also learned some of you, that's just your listening face. <laughs> and the reason I know that is because there was one woman who um, I got to know well enough to like ask that question. And I said, every time I'm up there preaching, I look out and you have like this really quizzical look on your face. And she was like, no, no, I'm totally tuned in with everything you're saying. And I realized, oh, that's, that's just your listening face. So some of you are just, it's not, it's not bad. It's not wrong. You're fine. Just be who you are. 
I just want you to know sometimes you look confused and that's distracting for me. Like I am really not connecting with you, am I? You have no idea what I'm talking about right now. Uh, the other thing that makes it challenging, obviously, is uh, every week when I look at it, either somebody who's maybe about to fall asleep, maybe is falling asleep. Back when we were meeting at the middle school, there was a college student at Grace University who fell asleep like right down here in the third row and was like sprawled out like over the seat, kind of like this, just dead asleep. And I was just feeling like, man, if you're going to do that, you got to be in the back row. Like give a brother some help. You can't do that right up front. And I promise you next to him were Michael Vandenbroek and Travis Barrett. I was like, guys, can you elbow a guy for me? Like help a brother out, you know? So occasionally someone feels a little sleepy. That's okay again. You know, if you had a long night, if it was daylight savings time, it's all good. I just want you to know it's challenging sometimes. Um, There's also those moments when babies are crying. And if you're a parent, you've been there. Like you feel it because it's, you know, it's not every day that it's your kid, but someday it's your kid. And you feel that, you know, the child's having a fussy day and that's okay and it is what it is. But here's the thing, as a parent, You've got to know that moment when it's time to take the kid out of the room because all the rest of us know that moment, right? And if you miss that moment, then it just gets super awkward for everybody. And, you know, there's a line. I don't know where the line is. There's a line somewhere between like normal fussy baby and, oh my gosh, everybody is totally distracted. I don't know where the line is, but you got to know when you're getting close to it and, other people know when you're getting close to it and they start feeling very nervous for you. And then that, those nervous vibes just make their way up here. And then I get really nervous, like, what do I do? I don't know what to do in that moment because I'm not gonna call you out and be like, excuse me, could you please take your kid out? Because that would be terrible. I'm not gonna do that. I've seen pastors do that before. It's very awkward. But it does create just challenges for me and I think I just feel the nervousness in the moment. Those moments... They happen often enough, but there are moments in this room that we all remember. There's moments that live on in the lore of Cormdale Church. There's one of them that you know if you were there. It was back when we were meeting at the middle school. I was preaching a sermon. It was a very normal day. And right up here in about the fourth row where Britain's sitting, uh, a lady's phone started ringing. Now, again, you've been that person in a quiet room where you forgot to silence your phone. And when that happens, you, you're grabbing for the phone and you're trying to, you know, silence it because you just feel terrible, right? You're like, don't want to disturb the moment. Not this lady. Her phone rang not once, not twice, but three times. And so everybody in the room is just like looking right over here, like what is going to happen next, you know? And she fishes the phone out of her bag Not to silence it, but to answer it. Hello? Yeah, I'm just here in church. Just while I'm preaching. And listen, they prepare you for a lot of things in seminary, but not that. Like I studied Greek and Hebrew. I took a lot of systematic theology. There was no class on what do you do when someone answers their phone in the middle of a sermon. And so I had panicked. And I wasn't sure what to do. So I, the best thing I knew in the moment was I just said, could you, could you maybe just take that outside? And so she got up without stopping her conversation, walked all the way out to the atrium, still talking. Not only that, but everybody sitting next to her in the row who apparently were family members all got up and all walked out together. 
And so now everybody in the room was just feeling so awkward because they're like, Bob just offended a whole family. They're never coming back here. This is the worst moment ever. I don't even remember how I ended that sermon. None of you do either. Because that's not what you remember about that day. You just remember, oh yeah, that time when that lady answered the phone. That's what we remember about that day. And so it's moments like that. Somebody actually in between services reminded me of another moment where a college student brought a whole burrito and just ate it on the front row, like during my sermon. <laughs> she was like, hey, do you remember that guy ate that burrito? And I was like, yeah, actually I do. He's a member of our church now. <laughs> God works in mysterious ways, you know? So there are a lot of moments that make this very challenging for me in, in lighthearted ways. There's actually a moment that makes it in more serious way challenging that I feel as well. And that is that every one of us, when we come here, right, we bring stories with us. Like every one of us in this room has a story that's shaped us. And so we're bringing into this room, not just ourselves, but we're bringing the story that we bring with us and all the things that have shaped us. And I know that as you look around this room, you can feel like, oh, all these other people kind of have it all together. But I promise you that's not the case. Like we're all good at keeping up appearances. But everyone around you, everyone in this room has their own story. And they carry their own joys and their own heartaches and their own successes and their own failures and their own struggles. And I feel that especially this morning because the topic that we're going to talk about this morning is the topic of forgiveness and reconciliation. And as I was praying and thinking about this sermon, I was just realizing how many different stories this text is landing on and all the different ways that you have wronged others and been wronged by others and all the complexity that creates for thinking about forgiveness. That's not an abstract topic, is it? Forgiveness hits us in the deepest places of our stories. And the odd thing when thinking about forgiveness is that it affects us on both sides because all of us have been sinned against by other people and all of us have sinned against other people. So we both need forgiveness, we need to be forgiven, and there are people we need to learn how to forgive. And that just adds a ton of complexity to the topic and to the room this morning. And it's one of the reasons why the story of Joseph is so profoundly helpful. Think about this. Jesus tells us that we should forgive. The gospel shows us how we can forgive because Jesus died on the cross for sin. But stories like the story of Joseph show us what it looks like to forgive. That's the beauty of narrative in the Bible. It's why God didn't just give us a systematic theology textbook, but gave us a book with a lot of narrative stories. Because we all know we should forgive. That's not the question. We're not asking, is forgiveness a good idea? Most of us would say, yeah, forgiveness is good. The question is, what does it look like to actually do that? What does it mean to live that out in the complexity of a real story and the actual complexity of real life. That's what stories like the story of Joseph show us. So I want you to think about just at the broadest level, chapter 42 of Genesis, which you just heard read. Here's what I want you to realize about it. The chapter begins in Canaan with Jacob and the brothers. 
They go down to Egypt where they encounter Joseph, and then they go back to Canaan. The chapter begins and ends in Canaan. So in this story, it's a picture of geographical distance. There's distance between Joseph and his brothers, and that geographical distance is a picture of the relational distance that's present. There's a relational gap. These people are estranged from one another. Why is Joseph in Egypt? Because his brothers sold him into slavery. And so the question of the text is, how will this gap be closed? How will this gap between these two parties be closed? And that's really the question I want to try to answer. What does it mean? to close the gap? How is this gap going to be closed in Joseph and his brother's life? And what does it mean for you? What does it look like for you to close the relational gaps in your life? So you might think about this question, who who are you distant from right now? Where are the relational gaps in your life that God might be inviting you to close? I want to talk this morning about closing the gap. Four principles we're going to draw out of this text about closing the gap. All right, here's the first one. Closing the gap requires someone to start the process. Someone's got to make the first move. Let's look in Genesis chapter 42, starting in verse 6. Notice what we learn. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Now, for the rest of the story, you as a reader know something that Joseph's brothers don't know. You know that he recognized them, but they don't recognize him. The brothers don't know that Joseph is a part of this story yet. Think about this. It's been about 20 years since Joseph has seen his brothers. The last time he saw them, they sold him into slavery. Now, suddenly, they show up to buy grain. Joseph has a choice to make. Will he seek revenge or will he seek reconciliation? To close the gap, someone has to start the process. And in one sense, in the biggest sense, it's God who starts the process. Like, think about this. The reason the brothers are in Canaan, the reason this encounter happens in the first place is because God has sent a famine on the land. God is the one who wants to reconcile this family. And he providentially is doing so by bringing a famine that's going to push these brothers together. So in one sense, it's God who starts the process of reconciliation. But in a secondary way, it's Joseph who does that. Joseph, the text tells us, um, you know, recognizes them, speaks roughly to them. He hides his identity. He realizes they don't know who he is. And so he sort of uh, plays along with the, the moment. But it's clear that he's moving toward them. I mean, he's the second in command in Egypt. He could have them killed on the spot if he wants to. He could send them packing. But in some small way, he's moving toward them. He's cautious yet open. 
And this teaches us something very important about forgiveness. Listen to Tim Keller from his excellent new book called Forgive. He writes this, Forgiveness is granted before it is felt. It is a practice before it is a feeling. That's something we need to hear, isn't it? Because we live in a very feeling-oriented society that says, unless you feel it, it ain't real. But when it comes to forgiveness, it's granted before it's felt. The text doesn't tell us what Joseph feels in this moment when his brothers show up. But we can imagine what he might feel. I mean, just put yourself in his shoes. You ever run into somebody who's wronged you in a place where you didn't expect to see them? Like at the grocery store, at the park, at a wedding, a place where you just weren't mentally prepared that you might see that person. You just run into them and you feel all those feelings rise to the surface. And in that moment, you're just not sure what to do. You can imagine perhaps Joseph is in a similar place. He probably doesn't feel warm, happy feelings toward his brothers. And yet, he chooses to move toward them. We can suspect that in the 20 intervening years, God in his grace has been doing some things in Joseph that make him in this moment willing to take a small step toward his brothers. Closing the gap that sin has created requires someone to start the process. Somebody's got to make the first move. And so listen, I don't know the situations in your life, but maybe that's you. Like maybe in the situations in your life, you're the one who needs to take the first step. Closing the gap requires someone to take the first step. Here's the second principle we see in the text. Closing the gap takes time. I want you to notice this chapter does not end with reconciliation. In fact, it ends with the brothers back in Canaan, right where they began. It ends with the same amount of distance between Joseph and his brothers that it started with. This chapter is just the beginning of a process that's going to take eight chapters to play out. Closing the gap takes time. It doesn't happen in an instant. You've probably noticed if you've been around church very long that Christians really like to tell completed stories, right? Like you ever been to a fundraising banquet or an evangelistic event and they have somebody get up and like give a testimony? What's the testimony? It's usually something like this, man, life used to be terrible. I used to be really messed up. Things used to be really bad. Then I met Jesus. Now everything's really good, Right? Those are, some, for some reason, the stories we like to, to hear because they have a sense of completion. You know the stories they don't tell? Life was really bad. It was really hard. I was really in a tough place. Then I met Jesus. Now things are still pretty complicated. And I'm doing the best I can to walk with him, but also, you know, I got a lot of baggage. Those stories, for some reason, don't feel as happy to us. We really like completed stories that have a happy ending. And I want to show you that's not what Genesis 42 gives us. It gives us an incomplete story. It's going to take eight more chapters to work itself out. Closing the gap takes time. Here at the beginning of the process, realize Joseph has every reason to not trust his brothers. I mean, literally, these are the people who sold him into slavery. So he has every reason not to trust them, and therefore he devises a test 
Look at chapter, or chapter 42, verse 19. If you are honest men, says Joseph, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And then you skip down to the middle of verse 24. It says, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. You see the test that Joseph is setting up here? Here's what Joseph knows about his brothers. They're absolutely willing to sacrifice a brother for the sake of their own comfort. That's the story he's been living for 20 years. So he's just teeing up the same test. Hey, let me take a brother. Let me give you all the grain you came for and all your money back and just say, have a nice trip. Are you going to come back for Simeon or are you going to leave him here? Furthermore, they say that Joseph's brother Benjamin is still alive, but how does he know? So the second aspect of the test is bring the youngest brother back and let me see him with my own eyes. And then maybe I'll believe you. Joseph here is, in a sense, living out biblical wisdom. Here's what wisdom shows us. Wisdom says it's not wise to trust people who are untrustworthy. It's not wise to trust people who have betrayed you. That's foolish. But it's also not wise to assume that people don't change. That's cynicism, but it's not wisdom. See, wisdom holds together the reality of the possibility of change and the grace of God, but also the reality of the persistence of human sin and brokenness. Wisdom is open yet cautious as it moves toward reconciliation. Listen again to what Keller writes. Part of real forgiveness means being open to the possibility of change in the offender and being truly unbiased and willing to offer more trust little by little. Being open to the possibility of change, willing to offer more trust little by little. That's exactly what Joseph is doing in this story. He's saying, let me take a first step. I'm open to the possibility that something's changed, but I'm going to trust real slow. Let's see what happens. Closing the gap takes time. Third principle we see in the story, closing the gap requires movement on both sides. This is a very important concept. There's a very important distinction I want to make between forgiveness and reconciliation, or what Tim Keller calls inward forgiveness and outward forgiveness, because they're kind of two aspects of the act of forgiveness. You might think of it this way, forgiveness takes one person. Reconciliation takes two people. Forgiveness is something you can do internally, even if the other person has never repented. But reconciliation requires repentance on the part of the other person. Forgiveness is something you need to do for the sake of your own soul. Reconciliation is something you can't do unless the other person responds in repentance. In this story, the brothers have not yet repented toward Joseph because, of course, they don't know it is Joseph. But they do show signs that they're willing to repent. Look at verse 21. Remember, they don't know Joseph is here. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. 
In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. They haven't yet apologized to Joseph, but notice what Joseph overhears. He overhears them say, we are guilty, we have sinned. They're ready for repentance. They show an awareness of their sin. Closing the gap requires movement on both sides. These brothers are going to have to move toward Joseph in repentance, and he's going to be have, have to be willing to move toward them in forgiveness. Now, this understanding of forgiveness, that there's two aspects or two sides to it, is very different from two common misconceptions about forgiveness that exist in the world. And so let me just mention those two, because many of us have encountered them. The first common but faulty view of forgiveness sounds like this, forgive and forget. This one sounds very religious. It sounds very spiritual. People sometimes say this is the Bible's teaching on forgiveness. Hey, just forgive and forget. After all, God has forgiven you. What's the big deal? You ought to just forgive. Why is it so hard for you? Forgive and forget. Easy to do when we're talking about minor relational slights, right? But how do you forget the things that have been most painful, most damaging, most destructive? You don't forget those things. Forgive and forget sounds noble, but it's a thin and shallow and unbiblical understanding of what forgiveness is. There's a second false view of forgiveness. If, if one side of the pendulum is, hey, forgive and forget, what's so hard about that? The other side of the pendulum is never forgive. Because after all, forgiveness just allows perpetrators to keep on victimizing people. It just allows injustice to persist. Forgiveness is the problem. Here's how that point of view was expressed in a recent article in Psychology Today. Forgiveness is an invader, an unwelcome guest. When people are treated cruelly by others, they are hurting. Now you come along and suggest forgiveness, something they are not prepared to do. Do you see what you have done? You have put pressure on someone who is hurting. You have introduced a new hurt into an already hurting heart. Send forgiveness packing and lock the door tightly. That's the pop wisdom that's out there, not just from psychology today, but from all kinds of social media influencers and self-appointed experts. Just don't forgive. Forgiveness is the problem. I want you to see that the wisdom of the Bible about forgiveness differs from both of those perspectives. On the one hand, the Bible says you must forgive for your own good, because if you don't, you'll be eaten alive with bitterness and anger and resentment. And when you forgive, you are open to reconciliation. But reconciliation, the repair of the relationship, is dependent on the repentance response of the other party. 
The biblical teaching on forgiveness holds together the necessity to forgive and the reality that forgiveness is never complete until the other party is willing to repent and move toward relationship. Closing the gap requires movement on both sides. Finally, closing the gap requires letting go of what you're holding on to. The end of this story brings our focus back to Jacob, the patriarch, the father in the story. And what we see is that in order to close the gap in this family, Jacob is going to have to let go of what he's holding on to. Look at verse 36. Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he, Jacob, said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Jacob is holding on to three things. First and most obviously, he's holding on to Benjamin. My son shall not go down with you. But why is he holding on to Benjamin? He's holding on to Benjamin because he's holding on to a couple of other things. He's holding on to his own pain. Look what he says next. For his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. He says to his nine other children. (laughs) Right? What does he mean? He is the only one left. The only one of what? The only one of Rachel's children still living. This is a man who's experienced the untimely death of his wife and the untimely death of one of his children. And this is the only child left that connects him to those two human beings that he loved. He's holding on to his own pain. And this child, Benjamin, represents to him Joseph and Rachel and all that he loved about them. Third, He's holding on to his own ability to control the situation. Notice what he says. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you're to make, you'd bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to shield. You know how I'll make sure nothing bad happens to Benjamin? I'll just keep him right here. Jacob's holding on to his ability to control life in ways that will keep him from pain. Listen to me. Relational pain always leads us to tighten our grip on other things in our lives. Relational pain always leads us to tighten our grip on other things in our lives. Do you see yourself doing that? Maybe like Jacob, you've had pain, heartache with one child, so you're tightening your grip on another child. Or maybe you're holding on tightly to other ways of coping. 
other ways of controlling your life through your work, through your hobbies, maybe through your anger, through your addiction to a substance. Listen, relational pain always leads us to tighten our grip on other things in our lives. And so closing the gap requires letting go of what you're holding on to. And this is the place in the story where your perspective as the reader is part of the Bible's genius. Because listen, Jacob thinks that by holding on to Benjamin, he's protecting himself against further pain. But you know, as the reader, that actually he's keeping himself from greater joy. You know what Jacob doesn't know, which is that Joseph is still alive. That Joseph's in Egypt and that Joseph's ready to reconcile if he can prove that his brothers are trustworthy. You know that actually if Jacob lets go of Benjamin, he's going to have even greater joy. But Jacob doesn't know that. But this is one of the ways the writer of the story is letting you into the redemptive power of the story. That actually it's in letting go of Benjamin that Jacob's going to experience greater and deeper joy. Sometimes, friends, the things keeping us from the greatest joy are our own self-protective strategies. Sometimes our attempt to keep things safe and controlled is the very thing that cuts us off from deeper joy and deeper life. Closing the gap requires letting go of what we're holding on to. And listen, what this story is showing you is that God is so good and so kind that he has bigger purposes than you may even know. Like if you just put yourself, put yourself in Jacob's shoes in the story, you understand the pain he's carrying. You understand his affection for Benjamin. You understand why he wouldn't want to let go. But God is showing you that God's out to do something bigger and better than anyone in the story can imagine. God's writing such a big story of redemption here that it's going to change Jacob's life, it's going to change Joseph's life, it's going to change all the brothers' lives, and it's going to change the whole trajectory of the future. God is showing you that sometimes he's out to do bigger things than you can possibly imagine. So, I've built the sermon around this theme of closing the gap. And in a sense, that's the theme of chapter 42. But as I've already said, it's a theme that's going to take eight more chapters to work itself out. So really, we could say this is kind of the theme of the rest of the story of Joseph, closing the gap. Over the next eight chapters, you're going to see progress toward this family being reconciled and toward these relationships being restored. Chapter 42 doesn't have a tidy ending, but it does set the trajectory for everything that's to come. So here's the question. In light of all this, what relational gaps in your life do you need to close? Where is God maybe inviting you to move toward forgiveness and reconciliation? Maybe there are some places that seem like there's an obvious first step. Maybe there are some answers to that question. You're like, well, I don't know what that's even going to look like. But all of us should be asking that question as we encounter this story. Where are the places in our lives where God's inviting us to move toward or even just start praying toward forgiveness and reconciliation?
Now, maybe you're thinking, look, Joseph is like a major Bible character. Um, he's like a biblical hero. I don't have Joseph-like faith. I don't have what it takes to do this. I'm glad it worked for him, but I don't have what Joseph has. Well, friends, I want to remind you, actually, you have something Joseph didn't have. You have the gospel. You can close the gap between you and others because in Jesus Christ, God has closed the gap between you and him. Remember the good news of the gospel. Here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 59. God says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your sins have created distance between you and God. That's the most important broken relationship that exists in your life. Your sins have created distance between you and God. But God in his mercy has freely moved toward you. He's taken the first step. He's initiated the journey of reconciliation. Unlike Jacob, who clung to his beloved son and would not let him go, God has freely sent his own beloved son into the world. Jesus took your sin upon himself, died on the cross, took it into the grave, set you free from its power and from its debt. He has fully and freely forgiven you. And now his arms are wide open in reconciliation. The Father invites you to be reconciled to him through what Jesus has done. Invites you to just repent and return. And listen, friends, repentance is not wallowing in guilt and shame. It's not promising to do better next time. It's not making up for your bad deeds with some good deeds. Repentance is just admitting your fault and turning back to the Father who loved us so much that he gave his one and only son. In a sense, repentance is modeled for us so well by the brothers in this story. Repentance is just acknowledging we are guilty. We've sinned. Is there hope for us? That's the disposition of repentance. And the good news is, yes, there is hope because God forgives sinners. God has made a way in Jesus. And when we see what God has done for us in Jesus, it ought to make us even better than Joseph at forgiving and reconciling. You can close the gap that exists between you and others because Jesus has closed the gap that exists between you and God. So what should our response be? Well, first, we should receive the forgiveness that God offers us in Jesus. We should return to the Father, receive his gracious gift of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We should, first of all, be reconciled to God, the scriptures invite. And then out of that, out of being reconciled to God by his gracious forgiveness, we ought to move out into the world and be reconcilers. Be forgivers. Now listen, remember, it's going to take time. It requires moving on both sides, and it requires letting go of what you're holding on to. I'm not saying that forgiveness, reconciliation is easy. It's actually very difficult. 
and challenging, and sometimes it takes a lot of time. But what I'm saying is that as God's people who have been forgiven in Jesus, we ought to have a bias toward forgiveness. We ought, to ha- we ought to have a bias toward reconciliation. We ought to live in the world as the most forgiving people we can be. And for those places in our hearts where we just know we're stuck or unwilling to forgive or feel like we can't, we just need to ask God to meet us in those places and give us grace. Because what this story shows us is that even the most broken stories can be restored. And even the hardest kinds of forgiveness can actually happen by God's grace over time. So in a minute, I'm going to pray and we're going to come to the Lord's table. I'm going to ask you this question as we do. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to ask forgiveness from? Where are the broken stories in your life that need redemption and reconciliation? And are you willing this morning just to invite God to move in those places? Maybe some of that even needs to happen this morning. Like maybe there's someone in this room that you just need to go, hey, I need to ask your forgiveness. How great that as we come to the communion table, that might be our posture. But wherever you need the grace of God, wherever forgiveness needs to work itself more deeply into your life and your story, would you invite God by his grace this morning to meet you there? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only son. Unlike Jacob, you did not hold back your beloved son out of fear, but you sent forth your son into the world that we might be restored to fellowship with you. Out of your very costly and great forgiveness, God, would you make us a forgiving people. We hold up before you this morning every story in this room and all the places in our lives where forgiveness is hard and where reconciliation seems distant and where we're not even sure that's what we want. And we just hold all that before you and say, God, would you meet us? Would you use this story of Joseph to teach us more deeply your longing for forgiveness and to teach us what it means to be a forgiving people and have a bias toward forgiveness? So God, where we're closed off, would you open us up? Where we are resistant, would you soften us? And where we're just confused, would you bring the light and the goodness of your gospel to bear on our stories? God, would you let us walk out of here this morning a more forgiving people, a people willing to close the gap that exists between us and others because you have closed the gap that exists between us and you. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.